Well, most of us have applied for a new job at one point or another, maybe um, out of work or perhaps just looking for a different job. Part of that process includes preparing and submitting a resume. Resumes are intended to give a brief overview of your education and employment history. Since it's usually the first introduction to a prospective uh, employer, it's very important that resumes be accurate and compelling. So you, you probably want to avoid the following blunders found on actual resumes. First, hobbies. Enjoy cooking Chinese and Italians. <laughs> Skills. Strong work ethic, attention to detail, team player, self-motivated attention to detail. <laughs> Next, under skills, proofreading. <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, four, experience, stocking, shipping, and receiving. <laughs> you might need to look that one up. Next, achievements, nominated for prom queen. Yeah, that might be, but probably doesn't, isn't resume worthy. Next, achievements, consistently tanked as top sales producer for new accounts. I think they meant ranked. <laughs> Next, achievements, received plague for top salesperson of the year. I think they meant plaque. Uh, next, skills, am a perfectionist and rarely, if, if ever, forget details. Nine, objective. I am fully aware of the king of attention this position requires. <laughs> and then I love this last one. Skills, bilingual in three languages. <laughs> Except English. <laughs> well, in addition to mistakes, there are also, uh, there's also the issue of padding resumes. Stretching the truth, or maybe just outright lying. According to Forbes magazine, the top misrepresentations on resumes include lying about getting a degree or exaggerating numbers, maybe sales numbers, the number of people you supervise, things like that. Increasing your previous salary numbers, playing with dates, you know, especially to kind of fill in those employment gaps. Um, inflating titles. I mean, why would you be a director when you can be a vice president? Uh, lying about technical abilities um, and, or, or padding grade point averages you know, 6.3 or something. Um, some, of the most, some of the most famous padded resumes include Scott Thompson, a CEO of Yahoo. He actually lied on his resume about his education, stating that he had received or he had earned two degrees, one in accounting, which was true, and one in computer science, not true. I suppose since he was applying to be the CEO at Yahoo, he thought computer science was important. Once the lie was discovered amid the pressure, he had to step down. Next, Robert Irvine of Dinner Impossible on the Food Network said on his resume that he had created Princess Diana's wedding cake, that he had prepared dinners at the White House and was knighted in England. I guess like Count von Lichtenstein, I don't know. None of that was true. And when it was discovered, they released him from the Food Network for a couple of years, he's back on now. One of the most famous padded resumes was Joe Biden. When he was a presidential candidate in 1988, his resume said that he received a full scholarship to college, 
Um, it was only a partial scholarship, not that big a deal, just kind of stretching a little bit. But he also said that he graduated in the top half of his class. He was actually 76th out of 85. Somebody said, it's not the top, let me help somebody, it's not the top half. Um, this probably has a little bit of challenge with numbers, maybe can anyone say 16 trillion. He had, um, he had to abandon his bid um, for the White House, at least for a time, because you see that didn't prevent uh, him from being elected to be our current vice president. So again, a resume is an introductory document designed to put your best foot forward. This is why I'm the best candidate. This is why you should hire me. This is why I'm better. I'm better than everyone else. It's appropriate in preparing resumes, uh, not to lie, uh, but with integrity to list education and experience, you know, job experience and, and accomplishments. But, but herein lies the challenge for us this morning. This is exactly how many people approach God. What do I mean? Well, this is how many people, many religions approach God. Here's my resume, God. It's pretty impressive. Here's my list of good things that I've done. Here are my experiences and my accomplishments. Made a Patted it just a bit, stretched the truth here and there. But hey, what's a little fabrication among friends? I'm, I'm good, God. Uh, you, you've kept the records. You know that I'm an okay guy. Good dad, good husband, faithful, you know, like most of the time. A good worker, never stole, well, much except a little time in office supplies. Good neighbor, I even attended church, did Bible studies, gave some money when they passed that plate if I had a little extra tip. And then I, I prayed, you know, when I needed something. And if we're not careful, we can start offering God our moralistic efforts. Look at what I've done, expecting him to accept me, to be pleased with me because of what I've done for him rather than what he's done for me. Do you understand what I just said? Christianity is not based on what Christians do for God. Christianity is based solely on what Christ has done for us. The work of Christ found in the gospel. The good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. And as soon as we start adding to the gospel, you know, padding our religious resumes, this is what I've done, this is what I need to do, this is what you need to do to be acceptable to God, then we make the gospel, listen, we make the gospel of no value. We have communicated to God that the gospel is nice, maybe. The death of Jesus was admirable, but it wasn't really enough. There are things that I must add to the death of Christ to make me okay. Now, these additions to the gospel can come in very, very subtle ways. It may be blatant, like these are things that you must do to be saved. You got to go to confession. You got to observe, you know, the mass or Eucharist, or, or you got to be good. This is especially prevalent in the Bible Belt South. It's amazing. You talk to people, you're going to go to heaven when you die. Yeah, why? I, I hope so. Well, why do you think you'll get there? Well, because, you know, and they start the list. They, 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 they give you a resume. 
Right? I, I, I go to church and I, I, I'm, I'm good and, 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 I, and I give a little bit and I help out and, and I'm good. And we start comparing ourselves to everybody else because we can always find somebody that's worse, right? Because everybody can always eventually play the Hitler card. Everybody's better than Hitler. And so I'm good. And so then you're talking to people, especially in Bible Belt South, and you say, well, what about Jesus and his death on the cross? And they say, oh, yeah, I believe that too. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus will not be that too? As soon as we start adding to the gospel, we say Jesus is nice but not necessary. There are things that I must do to add to the death of Christ to make me okay. Again, they can be very subtle, like, and frankly more insidious. If you do these things, then you're not a Christian. If you do these things, then you can't be a Christian. You just added to the gospel. The eternal salvation of people is not dependent on what people do to get it or what people do to keep it. It is all based on Christ. So, you struggle with sin. You know, that sin. Eh, well, there's no way then that you can be a Christian. And we have come up with our list of acceptable sins. You, you know, they're probably the ones that we do, and you can do these and still be uh, in. But the, but, 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 but the bad news is, you do a bad sin, the one that's on my list, and you're out. And unconsciously, we've made salvation a matter of what we do to get in and what we do to stay in. Either way, it's not the gospel. Some of you here this morning have struggled maybe for weeks, months, maybe even years, wondering, can I possibly be a Christian if I've done that? C can I possibly be a Christian if I've done that again? You're looking at your resume rather than the work of Christ. It does not mean that how I live as a follower of Christ doesn't matter, uh, but that's not what I'm talking about. I am talking this morning about the gospel, what got you in and what keeps you in. No one ever got in because of their experience and accomplishments, the good deeds on their religious resume. No one ever got in because of their religious resume. And no one is ever kept in because of the good things that they do or do not do. You see, this is the issue to which Paul turns his attention in our study of the book of Philippians. We're about halfway through the book now. I've actually fixed the outline. We've seen his salutation, his prayer of thanksgiving for them, his report of his own circumstances, and then his call to live lives worthy of the gospel. Please note, the call to live a life worthy of the gospel is not to earn the gospel. To live a life worthy of the gospel is to demonstrate that we are people of the gospel. We live lives that are consistent with who we are. 
who God has made us through the gospel of his son. Now, we turn to the second half of the book, and we're simply going to see some warnings about false teachers, some final instructions, a little thank you note, and then the, the closing. But there's lots of good stuff here. Starting with this warning to beware of false teachers. And guess what we're going to find? These false teachers were saying, hey, Jesus is okay. He's just not enough. You need to pad your resume. And it was condemned in the New Testament, and it needs to be condemned today. Read about it with me. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1. We're going to go through verse 7. We're, we're going to get to verse 6 today, but we got to re- read verse 7 just because if we stop at 6, we're going to be gasping for air. uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, my more, far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And we're going, I can't say that stuff. Good. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. First word of chapter 3, finally, makes it sound like that Paul is wrapping things up. Don't get, don't get excited. He's like most preachers who say finally and go on for a lot longer. The word actually means as for the rest. This is the last thing that I'm going to talk about before I do close this letter. He tells them to rejoice in the Lord. This has been a recurring theme in the book. In fact, he told them chapter 1, verse 28, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you, and I want you to, re- and I want you to rejoice. He keeps inviting them, and he's going to bring it up again in chapter 4, so I'll talk about it then. Then he seems to take a bit of a right turn and begins warning them about some false teachers. And, and it seems that he's warned them uh, about these guys before. He, he says, to write the same things again is no trouble for me. I, I'm going to do this because it's a, it's a safeguard. It's to protect you. It's for your own good. Now, there's no evidence in the entire book that these false teachers, whoever they are, had, had shown up at, at Philippi. Paul is just concerned that they could possibly show up and probably will since they had followed him throughout his entire ministry. So he writes to them to remind them of what he has warned them about before. In verses 2 and 3, he sort of gives a, he identifies the, the false teachers kind of by giving their resume. And then in verses 4 to 6, he kind of compares himself to them by giving his own resume, which forms our outline, resume of the false teachers, resume of the Apostle Paul. Now, I want to be very, very clear here before we even jump into it. When Paul gives his resume, it's not that he thinks that he has the education and the experience and the accomplishments necessary to be accepted into heaven. Quite the contrary. That's not the point. He is simply saying, compared to these guys, you want to do a comparison thing? You want to kind of brag a little bit? My resume looks pretty good. It does not matter. 
My resume isn't worth the paper that it's written on. It's going to be counted as loss. It's nothing but rubbish compared to knowing Christ. No matter how good you think you've been, no matter how good you think your resume, your spiritual religious resume looks, it will never, it has never made anybody acceptable to God. Think of it this way. When you send a resume to that prospective employer, you don't list everything, right? <laughs> you don't list your fail failures. You know, that year that you didn't meet the sales goals. No, you share the year that you did meet the sales goal. You, you share that you're a great team leader. Never mind that the reason you're a great team leader is because half the team quit because they can't stand you. And those gaps in employment, you're hoping no one notices. Or perhaps you change the dates to fill in those unemployment gaps and those references. Got news for you. Mommy doesn't count. References listed on resumes are always the people who like you. You don't ever list somebody who hates you. And this is the way that many of us approach God. Here, God, are just the good things. Here are some people that'll stand up for me, that like me. Never mind all the people that don't because I don't deserve it. And the truth is, God has been keeping the records, and he knows the whole unvarnished truth. You see, God has your undoctored resume. And as a result, he knows you need the gospel. And if your, if your religious resume does not have the gospel of Jesus Christ written across it, you are in big trouble. Paul starts with a warning. He's so strong that he says, beware, three times. Like when you come to a house, they got no trespassing signs everywhere. You know the owner is serious. So also Paul says, beware, beware, beware. And by telling us what to be aware of, he, 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 we can surmise who these false teachers are. First he says, beware of the dogs. That's worse than it sounds. You have to understand the dogs were not the furry pets that you think of today. They were mangy, feral uh, mongrels who lived on trash and roadkill. They ate corpses. They were despised by the Jews as unclean animals. They were. In fact, they were, they were also despised by Gentiles as well. But the Jews called Gentiles dogs. And so Paul starts by saying, beware of these dogs, not nice. Second, he called them evil workers, evil workers. He doesn't like these guys. Oh, well, these teachers saw themselves as promoters, teachers of righteousness. Paul says they are actually working evil with their message. Third, he calls them the false circumcision. And this gives us a strong clue as to their identity. You see, there was this group of false teachers that followed and dogged Paul throughout his ministry. We call them today, we have a name for them, they're Judaizers. That is, they're, they're they were Jews who wanted to make Gentiles follow the Jewish faith. Now, you have to understand, they weren't just followers of Judaism. These were ostensibly Jewish believers in Jesus as the Christ. 
but they added to the message of the gospel, and therefore their message was damnable. They said, Jesus is good. He's the Christ. You should believe in him, but that's not enough. You've also got to keep the law of Moses to be saved, especially those laws regarding circumcision and the Sabbath. Those were very important to, to Jews. They saw them as uniquely theirs. Their observance of these laws, uh, circumcision and Sabbath laws, um, uh, established their identity as the chosen, the covenant people of God. So they said, if they're following Paul around, talking to these Gentile churches, if you want to believe in our Christ, that's great. But you've also got to be circumcised in order to become part of the covenant people, in order to be acceptable to God. You need, in other words, to add to your religious resume. Believing in Jesus is not enough. That is damnable. Paul battled these guys throughout his ministry. For example, when he wrote these words in Galatians. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, you want to do that? Christ will be of no benefit to you. Christ becomes worthless. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You're adding to the gospel. You, you've been removed from Christ. You who are being, uh, seeking to be justified by the law. You want to go back to the law? You have been severed from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Through the Spirit, by faith, it's not by what we do. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith. Working. He uses those two words together just to throw you a curveball through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. Don't you understand that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Don't you understand that you got the gospel and you start sprinkling, you start adding other stuff in it? That you are, you are ruining the whole lump. I wish that those who are troubling would you even mutilate themselves. That's subtle. The, the word literally means I wish they would go ahead. They were talking about circumcision. I wish they'd go ahead and castrate themselves. Paul says if you add circumcision to the gospel, then you've got to keep the whole law. And since you can't, which, by the way, is why you need the gospel to begin with, then you will be without hope. Add circumcision to faith. Add anything to faith, people. And Christ is of no value to you. God will not be impressed with your circumcision. He will not be impressed with your padded religious resume. Paul actually turns the tables on these Judaizers, these, again, so-called Jewish believers. They call Gentiles dog, dogs. Paul says they are, in fact, the dogs. They think they're preaching righteousness. He says they're actually preaching evil. They see themselves as the circumcision. In fact, they are the false circumcision. You see, the circumcision was a title that the Jews held for themselves. We are the circumcision. Paul says... You are not the circumcision. You are the false circumcision. And that's actually a play on words. You see, the word circumcision is actually the word peritome, which means literally to cut around. Not going to go into that. Um, peritome. 
Um, the, that's the word that's used in the next verse when he says, we are the true circumcision, peritome. But of these false teachers, he says, you are the katatome. That is, you just mutilate the truth by cutting it up into little bitty pieces. You're messing with the gospel. Verse 3, Paul says, we are the true circumcision. In Romans chapter 2, he had said it this way. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. Go ahead. You want to be circumcised? Keep it all. Go ahead. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It's of no value. The uncircumcised man... The Gentile keeps the requirements of the law perfectly. He goes on to say he can't. Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? What's a little cut matter? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who are circumcised but can't keep the law? Jews. Then he says these incredible words, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is from men, uh, not from men, but from God. He says, we are the true circ- circumcision who have been circumcised of the heart by the spirit This external observance doesn't matter. Keeping a list of rules doesn't matter. That's what he means in the next verse. He says, we worship, literally, worship by serving in the Spirit of God. It's not just this external performance. We serve in the Spirit of God. What we do is not empowered by the flesh, It's empowered by the Spirit. And we glory not in outward expressions of religious practice. Check your Sunday morning box. Big deal. If this is the, wife and I were talking about this last Monday. If this is the extent of your faith, this hour on Sunday morning, this is just an external practice. But we glory only in Jesus Christ and his finished work. And we put no confidence in the flesh. We bring nothing to the table. We have nothing to put on our resumes. Our resumes would be blank. Think that'll get you hired? Think that'll get you selected? These guys were proud of what they brought to the table. So at this point, Paul begins this little comparison. You think you have impressive resumes. You think you have reason to put confidence in the flesh because of your Jewish um, flesh and credentials. Well, let's compare, shall we? And now he gives his own list, his own resume. Now, again, he's not saying here that I've earned anything. That's not his point. And he gives a list of seven things. These first four have to do with his birth and not his performance. They're proud of their circumcision. I, too, was circumcised on the eighth day, just like Genesis 17 says, too. You're compelling these Gentiles to be circumcised? Won't be on the eighth day. They'll be second-class citizens. Uh, Not only that, I am of the nation. That literally means of the race of Israel. I have Jewish blood coursing through my veins. I am of the covenant people of God, a descendant of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Third, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. 
That's important. You see, you may remember that there were 12 tribes in Israel, and you may remember from our study of Joseph that Benjamin was the last son of, of Jacob through his favorite wife, Rachel. So he was a special son. He was a favored son. From this tribe came the very first king of Israel, whose name was Saul, very likely where Paul got his name. Benjamin was the only tribe that sided with Judah in the southern kingdom, and the other 10 tribes went, well, north. Uh, and within Benjamin, the, the territory of Benjamin was the city of Jerusalem. Listen, Benjamin was it, man. It was the favored tribe. Not only that, Paul said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What's that mean? At this time, there were so-called Hellenistic Jews. That means Jews influenced by Greek culture. And there were Hebrew Jews, those who maintained their Hebrew culture. Greek Jews spoke Greek. They, 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 they had lost their Hebrew tongue. They followed Greek customs. They dressed like Greeks. Hebrew Jews still spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. They were very proud of that. They maintained their national Hebrew identity. They ate Hebrew hot dogs, things like that. The, the, the next three qualifications on the resume were those that Paul himself chose. These are my accomplishments, right? On the resume, here's my accomplishments. There we go. As to the law of Moses, as to how I chose to, to obey it, I was a Pharisee. We know that there were various religious groups within Judaism, but the very strictest sect were the Pharisees. Not certain, but we think the word means holy ones or separated ones. And that's it, man, because they kept themselves aloof from the common people. They were very fastidious in their observance of the oral law that came from the Mosaic law. For, for example, when the law said, keep the Sabbath, which remember were very, very, very important to them, they came up with hundreds of rules of how you actually kept the Sabbath. They were considered the most holy people in the land. That's what I was. Sixth, he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Zeal was an important attitude, um, word and attitude with Jewish people. There was even a group within those religious groups called the Zealots, who eventually rebelled against Rome and got Jerusalem raised. But, but, but Paul said, my zeal for God was demonstrated in my persecuting the church. This group of people, that they, they, were, they, were, they were worshiping a crucified Messiah. I went after them. I was there when Stephen was stoned. I got papers from the Sanhedrin and went and arrested Christian Jews, hauled them back and tried them and cast my guilty verdict, which led to their deaths. I was zealous. Last, as to the righteousness which in the law, I was found blameless. That doesn't mean he never sinned. That's not what he means. No one could keep the law perfectly. So they came up with that whole list of rules to make it look like they could keep the law. This tradition of the elders. Obeying rules that they made up. All those rules about the Sabbath and also that it was really important to them that they washed their hands a certain way, this ceremonial cleansing. Man, when it comes to this kind of oral tradition, I did it right. I was blameless. In other words, I had quite the impressive resume. How's yours compare? We have people all over the country, all over the world, trying to impress God with their resumes. 
So let's compare ours. Because, again, many today are compiling religious duties to be accepted by God. For example, you say, maybe we were, maybe we weren't circumcised. Probably few of us on the eighth day. But hey, I was baptized as a baby. This was a religious rite performed by my parents to make me okay, either to start the salvation process or to bring me into the covenant community so that I would be okay. The only problem with that, by the way, is that nowhere in the Bible, never once, do we find a baby being baptized. In the Bible, it is always believers baptized as a symbol, a sign that they have believed what? The gospel and have become part of the new covenant people of God. But, 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 but people cling to their baptism as infants. I'm okay. Okay? I'm not a Jew of the nation of Israel, but I am an American. I'm suggesting you not put that on your resume. I was born into a Christian nation. It's amazing how many people think that they're okay because of where they were born. Do you know that 70, 80% depends on which survey you look at of Americans think they're Christians? Why? Well, because they're Americans. Isn't that synonymous with being Christian? I'm a Hebrew. I mean, I'm of the tribe, uh, the nation of Israel. I'm of the nation of America. I wasn't of the tribe of Benjamin, but I wasn't born into the tribe of Baptists or Methodists or Presbyterians or fill in the blank. Being born into a certain religion, even Christianity, being born into a certain denomination does not matter. I won't make a one-to-one -one correspondence with all of these. As to the law of my particular brand of religion, all that rules that, that my denomination came up with, I was pharisaical in its observance. Man, I can tell you some stories. I mean, I, grew, I didn't grow up Baptist. I grew up independent Baptist. Because the rest of you Baptists were a bunch of flaming liberals. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you what. As far as keeping rules, I kept rules. I didn't drink or smoke or chew or run with girls that do. I didn't dance. I didn't play cards. I didn't do any of that. I was holy. Just ask me. I'll tell you. <laughs> I was zealous about my beliefs. I was righteous as it came to external rules and regulations. You may say I was an altar boy. I sang in the choir. I never missed church. I tied. I went to Sunday school. Those are all things that I did. They're on my spiritual resume. What you understand is it relates to eternal salvation. God will look for one thing. Do you know Jesus? Have you been saved by grace through faith? He is not at all interested in your external performance. Your good works are of no value when it comes to being in a right relationship with him. Your good works will not get you in. Your good works will not keep you in. Remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, check out my resume. Did, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Man, in your name, look at what we did. And the problem is Christianity is not built on D-O, it is built on D-O-N-E. It's done. 
And then I, Jesus, will declare to them at the judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who did all these wonderful things because you practiced lawlessness. You were sinners. You may only have the good things on your religious resume, but Jesus says, I have the entire unvarnished truth. I have the books. We don't become Christians by what we do for God. We don't stay Christians by what we do for God. We become Christians by faith in what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, the truth is, is if, the, if, our, if our works, our resumes, everything that we have done was displayed on the screen, there's not a person here who would not be shamefully embarrassed. There's not a person here who deserves your attention. The, the, the truth is you love us not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And now we, we are children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. But it's not because we deserved it. So, Father, would you encourage us with the truth of the gospel? Once again, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.